Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. It's wildfire season in California, and for our latest policy in a pint, we're talking with the man in charge of making sure it doesn't burn the state down. Wade Crowfoot is the new secretary of the Department of Natural Resources. That makes him the head chief of CAL FIRE, the agency in charge of managing the state's forests and fighting wildfires that break out in them. Crowfoot also leads the Department of Water Resources, which is tasked with managing and regulating the state's water usage and making sure there is plenty of clean water available for fish, farmers in their fields, and the rest of us. Wildfires and water are ever-present issues here in California, and with those things fluctuating more than ever before, Secretary Crowfoot is in the hot seat when it comes to making decisions about what to do with both of them in this age of climate change. We're at Antiquity Midtown for a great conversation with Wade Crowfoot about what he's planning to do about forest management, wildfire preparedness, water usage, firefighting efforts, and how we should all prepare ourselves for wildfire season 2019. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We are a civic engagement organization based in Sacramento, California's capital. And we talk about innovative groundbreaking things that are happening all around California and the groundbreakers who are making those things possible. Everything from arts to agriculture, policy, politics, education, higher ed, higher ed, you name it, whatever happens in California, we try to cover it. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. Tonight we're doing one of our Policy in a Pint events to discuss what's coming out of the Capitol and translate it from wonky policy speak, if that's how people think of it, into a conversation that's interesting, understandable, and relevant to you as a voter, taxpayer, and resident. And I think this evening, we're doing it on a Tuesday night uh, that's 98 degrees, I believe, for a high. I think this is a perfect night to talk about our topic this evening. Uh, wildfire season is here, although it seems like in California it's year-round, um, right? So to find out how the Golden State is planning for this year in particular, especially after the epic fires that we've had uh, in the past two years, we're having a conversation with a man who's pretty much now responsible for a lot of wildfire season efforts, firefighting, forest management, um, how we're going to pay for it, handling the feds uh, role, and that is uh, Wade Crowfoot, who is the new Secretary for Natural Resources here in California. He's in charge of CAL FIRE, the Departments of Water Resources, Department of Fish and Wildlife, Parks and Recreation, Coastal Commission, a whole bunch. Uh, so basically, he makes a lot of decisions about what happens on California lands, and especially in this age of climate change, a lot of those decisions are going to be very, very important going forward. So tonight, we're going to try and cram as many questions as we can about a wildfire season, like I said, forest management, wildfire preparedness, also water management. Obviously, that's a big deal, and Governor Gavin Newsom's made a lot of um, comments and uh, thoughts about what he wants to do, so we're going to try and get that in. It'll be 30 minutes of questions, ideally from me, the moderator, and then 30 minutes of questions from our audience out here. Um, I want to give, before we start, a special thanks to people who helped make this event happen. We're holding this uh, uh, event in a lovely space in Midtown, Sacramento, called Antiquity Midtown. So I want to thank the hosts, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose, for hosting us. Uh, also to Roost Dollar Beer, a lot of the audience got a uh, free drink, well, free, drink with their ticket. And uh, I want to thank J.E. Pano from Roost Dollar, who's also on our board of directors for donating the beer. 
Also, a special thanks to our volunteer extraordinaire, Danielle Metzinger, for helping uh, check everyone in. Nate Graham, who's helping out with audio podcasts, thank you both. Always love the help of volunteers. And then Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording the podcast that we're doing tonight and putting it up online. Of course, thank you to Secretary Crowfoot, taking time out of a busy schedule. I'm so glad there's no fire happening tonight. And then last but not least to you, the audience, because it's a busy schedule you have. It's a hot night, so I appreciate your uh, showing up. Um, so this is basically a one-on-one -on -one -on -one with you, Secretary. So I'm just going to, I think everyone knows your name and your organization, but I always like to start off with a personal question um, to, to let us know who you are, the man behind the, the Secretary title. So for a personal note about you, I wanted you to tell us about an interesting place you visited, a hike you've taken, a place you've spent time that best shows off California's natural resources at their finest. Well, thanks so much, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's beautiful uh, location here in Midtown, uh, cool environment on a very hot night, mixing two things that I love, public policy and beer. Um, I've heard that Richard Nixon, actually, before he gave uh, addresses, one of his requests backstage was a can of beer that he drank before his speeches. I've never verified that, but uh, I always thought that that was an interesting approach to loosen the tongue. So I'm testing the hypothesis here tonight. I do that, and it does work, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, in any event, uh, it's great to be here. A little bit about myself. Um, I am actually moving to Sacramento in just uh, four days. From I, where? Uh, from Oakland, California. Huh? Yep. So just down the road. Uh, I spent uh, five years working in the Brown administration, uh, commuting back and forth. Uh, and so made a decision with my wife that if this, if we was gonna, if, we are, if I was going to take this opportunity, we would be here uh, locally. So I'm really excited about uh, locating in Sacramento. Uh, we have a four-year-old starting uh, elementary school uh, in East Sac. Uh, and so uh, for folks in the crowd, if you have any uh, good suggestions of uh, what to do with a four-year-old in Sacramento, if you're new to town, let me know. Um, but I'll say that, uh, you know, the, the area that we've enjoyed over the last several years, which is one way to enjoy nature, is in the East Bay Regional Parks. Uh, and I know in the Sacramento area, uh, I imagine you all have the, your favorite place to go into nature. Uh, I love the East Bay Regional Parks uh, because for two reasons. One is they're highly accessible. Uh, they have redwoods. And in my case, they have off-leash dog walking. Uh, so I have a 60-pound dog that needs to burn off energy. Uh, so I think what's so unique about California is just the proximity uh, uh, of nature to the places that we live. And that's something I'm really proud of uh, working uh, to support and to protect at the Resources Agency. Great. Thank you, and welcome to Sacramento. Uh, the first few questions I have are, again, are more about getting to know you and, and, and kind of charting your, your path to where you are now, just recently appointed secretary. So the first question is, I, you grew up in Michigan, I think, pretty much. So that is a beautiful state, a lot of natural beauty and resources. And I was wondering if your childhood there or growing up there affect the career path you took, if it did, to what you're doing today. Uh, it did, actually. So my dad was an environmental studies professor at the University of Michigan, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we spent all of our summers in, uh, for at least a month in a cabin in northern Ontario without running water and electricity. Uh, so I grew up with a real love for nature. And actually, uh, I had a conversation with my dad at one point that uh, when I was sort of getting into my 20s, asking him if he could do anything different with his career, what would he, he have done? And he said he would have gotten more involved in politics. Um, so I don't think that's the reason why uh, I, I've chosen the path, but it's just an interesting, it's interesting to reflect on that now doing what I'm doing. 
And then I noticed, uh, you know, obviously I looked at your resume and uh, you started a lot with politics and then a lot on water and environmental issues. You worked for our current governor when he was mayor, and then you moved on to work for our previous governor, Jerry Brown. So I wanted you to... uh, talk about two things at the same time, your job responsibilities that got you to where you are now, just recently appointed secretary, and at the same time, during the, with those positions, can you tell us, com- compare and contrast working for Gavin and working for Jerry? <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Um, so I spent five years working for then uh, Mayor Newsom when he was the 34-year-old uh, mayor of a major American city, and uh, it was an incredible an amazing experience, uh, and I worked on I, essentially for a lot of that time as his environmental advisor. Uh, and then I left and worked for a large uh, environmental nonprofit called the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, and then I came to Sacramento to work in Governor Brown's office. Uh, in in Governor Brown's office, uh, I had I was a, a policy advisor and what, and worked on the, the so-called cabinet team. So you work closely with the agencies. Uh, and my portfolio at the time included transportation. Uh, emergency management, and a, and a few other areas. Um, when the California drought hit, uh, I became the point person in how we would respond to the drought. So I ended up living and breathing um, water policy. Uh, and what I like to tell people is I had uh, dark brown hair when that started. And for those uh, who are listening by podcast, I now am probably as much salt as, as pepper. Um, but it was an amazing experience. Um, I'll say that Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown are alike in a couple of important ways. Um, One is uh, incredible work ethic. I mean, so these guys wake up working and they go to sleep working and they and they work all weekend uh, in the sense that their mind is always working. Um, You know, you'd know uh, that there was a decent chance that you could get a phone call uh, from Jerry Brown on the weekends because his mind, he wasn't shutting his mind off or or shutting down his work. Likewise with with Gavin Newsom, um, just an incredible uh, uh, work ethic. I'll also say both uh, are really results oriented. And I like to think I like have a constructive impatience in terms of getting things done and actually making concrete progress. Um, They're different in some respects where um, you know, Governor Brown, um, uh, you know, one could say he focused on a limited number of things and went very, very deep. Um, so you think about his uh, leadership on climate change or uh, criminal justice reform or obviously the state budget. And then, you know, Gavin Newsom obviously um, is focused on a great many issues, uh, even in his first six months, and demonstrating from my, where I sit a real aptitude towards making progress in each of those areas. Um, so it goes without saying, but it was, it was, it was a, an incredible experience to work for, for Jerry Brown, and I'm really excited to work for Gavin Newsom. Yeah, and I was going to say, you came at a very interesting time. The drought was obviously a, a big deal, and you had a lot of uh, responsibilities. So segueing into the question from there is, you know, recently appointed as secretary, what, April? Uh, obviously, this is a really big job, but you have a, a wide background. But since you have been on the job for the past what, month and a half, two months? What has struck you most, either personally or professionally, about the responsibilities you now have to handle as the guy in charge? Not like you're scared or, you know, but just something that just, you realize the magnitude of this of this position uh, and the, as big a state we have. What's the most Well, notable? I mean, one takeaway is that there are a ton of really smart people working in state government. And I think, you know, government bureaucrats, quote unquote, get derided. Uh, oftentimes, but the fact is that people in my positions come and go. 
Um, but I've had a chance to meet people up the elevator, down the elevator in our building or out in the field that are literally spending their entire careers um, advancing certain issues. Uh, today I was talking about um, long line um, fishing gear and its impact on swordfish um, with what may be America's experts uh, in state government on that topic. Yesterday it was the prospect of lithium development, which is a rare earth metal in the Salton Sea. Um, with people that know a tremendous amount. Uh, and then there are folks that have been working with communities. Uh, we have people that have been partnering with tribes, for example, um, that know uh, more about the, the tribes, these sovereign tribes, um, than, than uh, certainly I ever will. So that's one, that's one uh, key takeaway. And then secondly is just how much can get done in government. Um, and the job that I have uh, does have, you know, is, it leads a, a really large, broad agency. Um, so I wake up every morning thinking this is the best job I'll ever have just because the uh, potential to get so much done. Yeah, it sounds like every day is different. Every day is different. Okay, but because it is hot and it is, I guess, the official start of wildfire season, the next questions I have for you are on that. Um, I guess the first thing is before fires start, uh, obviously forest management, management, I mean, there's a lot of talk about how how well managed our forests are, how poorly managed, you know, we've been doing cutting. So in terms of your, you know, now going forward with forest management, how do you approach heading off uncontrolled wildfires before they start? What's the, what's your take on now on forest management? Yeah, I'll answer the question, but I want to set the frame at least to share the perspective that I have uh, on, on wildfire uh, safety and forest management. And I have some colleagues in the crowd that know far more on this than I do. So uh, throw your beer if, uh, if I get anything wrong. Um, but, you know, wildfire is a natural part of California's ecology, right? So long before European development, there has been cyclical seasonal wildfire, typically started by lightning and other natural means. There's also a lot of evidence that California uh, tribes actually managed uh, forests through prescribed burns. Well, but, you know, 200 plus years ago, uh, you know, Europeans start settling California and our population grows. Uh, and our population expands in the so-called wilderness. And we begin to suppress fire to protect communities. Uh, and we start to lose that natural uh, cycle of uh, fairly small scale fires that really manage the forest on their own. Um, at the same time, with those population and development pressures, uh, we're obviously experiencing um, a new climate. Uh, the last 10 years have been hotter and drier given the, this recent drought. Um, so we have a forest, particularly in the Sierra Nevada, but across the state that uh, really has experienced the driest uh, conditions uh, in recent memory. We have uh, epidemic uh, tree mortality in the, in the Sierra Nevada, upwards of 150 million dead trees as a result of the drought. Uh, a bark beetle, which is endemic, which means it's naturally occurring here, usually uh, sort of culls the dead and dying trees, um, started attacking um, a much uh, broader set of trees that were stressed under drought. Um, so we have this sort of perfect storm of significant development pressures uh, in California. Important fact, 25% of California, upwards of 11 million people, um, live in a, uh, an area that has high uh, hazard high wildfire risk. So we have these development pressures with a changing climate, and that creates um, new challenges. This question of, of forest management, which is how are we 
Um, how are we addressing this new reality? And I think that there is a strong um, mainstream thinking that we actually have to do more actively in our forest uh, to manage our forests. In other words, prescribed fire, um, you know, fuel breaks around communities, some appropriately ecologically focused forest thinning um, to really emulate those sort of natural processes. And the key is uh, avoiding this catastrophic fire risk. Um, what we've seen in the last few years is fires that burn larger and hotter uh, on average than ever before. So as my colleagues have educated me, a healthy fire in, for example, the Sierra Nevada is one that burns the understory, but then you keep the canopy, you keep those really big trees. Um, what's happening with these fires in these super dense forests that haven't burned in 100 years is they're getting so hot, they're just wiping out um, you know, the entire uh, ecosystem of, of plants and trees, uh, which is a real problem. Uh, so Governor Brown stood up what was called a forest management task force to really work across agencies. I can talk more about that. Um, we've appointed uh, a new leader, Jennifer Montgomery, uh, to lead that to really focus on scaling up forest management in, in coming years. Um, and then I guess the fighting the fires. Uh, last year, um, I was up in Lake County, so Mendocino Complex, and then my parents, there was a King fire, um, I think three years ago. I think, I don't know, I'm one of those people that, not in the fire, but somehow near the perimeter and I see it, and it's crazy, and then there's the helicopters in the, in the dumps. So obviously last year, there were a lot of lessons learned, I'm sure, by CAL FIRE in terms of how to fight fire or, um, you know, how to handle it. Um, it was very overwhelming. But when you talk with CAL FIRE, I guess, uh, going forward, if, say, 2019 is another year like 2017-18, what are lessons learned or strategies now for fighting fires if, if, if or when they break out? Yeah, great question. So just to put 17 and 18 in context, um, easily the most destructive fire seasons uh, in California history. Over the last two years, 3% of California's landmass has burned. So fully 3% uh, of the state. Tens of thousands of structures destroyed, tens of billions of dollars damage, uh, and of course, the loss of upwards of 125 uh, lives. If you, if you plotted sort of a, uh, annual acreage burned on a bar chart, you would see you know, a fairly consistent up and down, uh, but fairly consistent, and then 17 and 18 spiked. Uh, and so the question is, is that the new normal or is that an anomaly? Um, we're not waiting around to find out. You know, we need to treat, like the, treat this situation like it is the new normal. Um, and so the focus is you know, fundamentally first on avoiding um, uh, ignition, uh, st uh, the starting of new fires. There's been a lot of attention to PG&E and, elect uh, and utility-driven fires. You know, electrical ignitions uh, started by utilities and could be your home wiring um, account for about 10% of California's fires. Um, the vast majority, well over 90%, though, are human-caused. Um, and so rare is the fire that starts from a lightning strike on a rare electrical storm. This is, this is human-induced. Um, so part of what CAL FIRE is focused on is really uh, avoiding ignition. And we, can all, we all have a role to play. Uh, a lot of us camp. Um, you know, if you're allowed to uh, build a campfire and build a campfire, you know, be very careful. If you're doing open burning in a more rural environment and you're allowed to do that, be really careful. I mean, there's any number of, of, of steps that we can all take, and it may be a matter of life and death. Um, so one is, you know, avoid the fires. Two is folks need to be prepared. 
Um, I don't think one out of four Californians uh, really has a plan to, uh, to flee wildfire and understands the evacuation routes in their communities. And we're not just talking about you know, rural communities like Paradise. We're talking about suburban Bay Area, suburban Los Angeles, San Diego. Um, so folks need to be prepared. CAL FIRE, thanks to the legislature and the governor, is putting more resources than they ever have um, on protecting communities, which I can talk about in a little bit. Um, but I just want to make the point that it, it really does start with everybody, um, which is much like the drought where Californians stepped up and, and reduced their usage by 25% uh, water across the board. Um, we need that same sort of mobilization on wildfires. You know, I had a question. You had said 3% of landmass had burned, and uh, I think the Sacramento Bee, at least, that was one of the newspapers that put out a fire risk map recently, and a lot of red in the Sierras. What percentage of the state, if you know this, is under, like, I don't know, a red and orange fire risk? Is it more than 50, or mm. is that not, you, it's too hard to determine? I'm going to phone a friend. <laughs> ah. 25 million acres. 25 million acres out of over, oh, about 100 million acres in California. That's 25%. So. Uh, that's in like the red, red high risk? High, wow. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot. And again, you know, we think about communities uh, like Paradise, which are beautiful communities really in the forest um, with, you know, a couple of ways in and a couple of ways out. But again, one quarter of California's population um, live uh, in areas that are threatened by wildfire. Uh, and I was talking to one legislator who explained to me that really before she took office, she didn't even realize that her suburban community in LA was in one of those high hazard zones. One of the things we're seeing recently is um, fires that are driven by high winds. So you actually have embers that are floating off uh, the, the area of fire and uh, essentially catching the wind and then moving ahead, uh, uh, well ahead of the fire line. And this is a huge uh, challenge that I think uh, it was uh, evident in Santa Rosa and certainly Paradise as well, where actually the fire ignites um, in advance of the fire line. Um, so it's just an important reminder that, um, you know, more than anything, Cal Fire's message to the public is when you're asked to evacuate, evacuate. Uh, people have literally died um, in multiple flat fires year after year after year because they just don't heed the evacuation warning. I had a question also about um, using technology to prevent fires because I, I think I've read uh, and heard Governor Newsom talking a lot about how technology can be used, the cameras, and then recently I think there I saw a press release about the X Prize, which I guess is uh, a Silicon Valley Foundation uh, X Prize they give out for innovative technology, and they are issuing a specific one for a prize they're giving out to anyone who comes up with some great technology to to prevent fires or to spot them. So I was just wondering about the tech, tech, nah, technology being used um, going forward to spot and control and manage wildfires. What's innovative coming out? Yeah, CAL FIRE has been uh, focused in the last several years on trying to utilize more technology uh, in the firefight. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, increased use of um, iPads and essentially mobile tablets um, that download data in real time. Um, so that uh, that commanders and uh, division leaders, et cetera, can actually look at the fire growing in real time. One of the interesting questions is that does require um, uh, uh, wireless bandwidth 
um, in, in fire zones. So that's in rural, often rural areas, right? Which sometimes don't have it. Another example uh, in the rim fire is the national guard actually got uh, permission from the department of defense, uh, to fly a large drone, um, like, you know, a drone that would be used in warfare actually to, uh, uh for reconnaissance, nighttime reconnaissance, uh, for the rim fire, which was really critical in understanding how the fire was moving uh, to protect firefighters. Remind us where the rim fire was. Uh, uh, Tuolumne County, uh, outside of uh, Yosemite. Oh, that was the Yosemite one. Okay, yep. Or yep. it hit Yosemite. So 2014, yeah, and so that was an example of where actually uh, an unmanned aerial vehicle was actually providing real-time information that was protecting firefighters uh, on the ground. Anybody that knows Gavin Newsom uh, knows that he leans uh, far forward as it relates to technology, really in every front. So in his first full day of office, he actually issued uh, two executive orders on wildfire. One was to develop uh, what was what's, what we're calling an innovation procurement sprint essentially to waive the typical contracting processes for the state to try to bring in new technologies for detecting and fighting fires that can be piloted this fire season. Um, so in addition to that, also put funding uh, in this year's proposed budget for cameras. Um, so the fact is, I don't think technology will save us uh, from having to fight wildfires, but it'll certainly help us ultimately uh, spot fires earlier, keep them smaller, and ultimately protect people. Okay, so working with technology now, working with the feds, because I read recently that President Trump wants to cut payments for firefighting in federal land. A lot of land in California is federal land. So my question for you is, uh, how is it going so far dealing with Washington, D.C. on this issue? Well, anybody that works in government knows that, you know, we work hand in glove with federal and local governments. So, you know, folks that are reading newspapers or going online, you know, will often hear disputes between our governor and the president uh, or um, on, some, on some issues. But on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a really close working relationship, uh, in this case with CAL FIRE and the Forest Service, certainly on water, et cetera. So I want to say that, you know, at the end of the day, there are a lot of uh, men and women that work for the Forest Service who are Californians, who are protecting California day in and day out in the forest. Um, that being said, the federal government needs to spend more funding uh, on actually preventative measures uh, for firefighting. What's happened with the federal budget over time is more and more funding gets, gets essentially raided every year to fund uh, firefighting versus fire suppression uh, or fire prevention. Uh, and so you can imagine the analog with healthcare would be you're spending more money in the emergency room and less on preventative care. Um, so we need to change that. Uh, big federal reform is coming forward in 2020 to stop that fire borrowing. But even in this uh, federal budget, uh, we've made the case that more needs to be spent uh, by the federal government, both the president and Congress, on uh, protecting uh, forests in California. And I think in terms of budget, I, the firefighting budget for last year Originally, it was $442.8 million, but Cal Fire needed an additional, by September, they needed an additional $234 million to continue fighting the fires. And they hadn't even really, well, a lot of them had, were still going, and then campfire had started, hadn't started yet. And I think I read now, to clean up after all the 2018 fires, estimated $3 billion. Uh, what's the annual budget? now for CAL FIRE, uh, do you more or less? Uh, and, and will that be an annual thing based on what we spent last year? Yeah, well, I mean, I think 
we're always going to in California and Cal Fire is always going to spend what it needs to, uh, you know, protecting communities and lives. You're not going to cut them fire. off. No, I mean, and, and we've always been really effective at spending um, those, you know, getting the emergency funding for that. And that's a bipartisan issue, the legislature and the governor. The challenge is if we don't get ahead of the curve, we're going to be spending more and more reacting um, and not able to protect, you know, communities. We have to spend far more money uh, up front. So the legislature and the governor committed uh, last year to spend a billion dollars uh, of funding actually on forest management, uh, on really trying to prevent these large catastrophic uh, wildfires. The question is, is it enough? Um, you know, time will tell. Um, but again, we have to get ahead of this, uh, ahead of the curve uh, towards, you know, preventing fires where we can and keeping them small where they start. Okay, so a couple more questions about wildfires. Obviously, a, a, a hot topic, there's so many puns I can use about fire, but a hot topic is utilities. I know you don't manage, you know, the Public Utilities Commission. You probably have to work with them often and utilities. What is your take on this discussion we're having right now about utilities responsibility um, in wildfire management? Because, you know, putting them on the hook, but then that may mean raising rates for us. What's your take? Yeah, so the California Public Utilities Commission essentially regulates what are called investor-owned utilities. So if you live in Sacramento and get your energy from SMUD, um, SMUD is not regulated by the CPUC. CPUC regulates PG&E, Southern California Edison, and San Diego Gas and Electric. Um, those three utilities provide energy to about 70% of Californians. Um, and essentially, our, our state grants them a monopoly, uh, or historically a monopoly, to provide energy um, with, uh, with the expectation that state government will provide oversight, including the rates that they can charge. Part of that role has involved ensuring a safe utility. So, for example, when we had the natural gas leak um, down in Southern California at Aliso Canyon, the PUC had a role to play uh, in, in trying to understand what happened to protect safety. Increasingly, with these wildfires, there's a, there's a larger role for the CPUC uh, on ensuring that PG&E and the other utilities are uh, taking adequate action to, to uh, reduce or prevent wildfires. Um, and there's a pretty uh, active conversation in the legislature around whether they need more capacity or um, uh, stronger mandates to protect that safety, or whether there need to be additional sort of government mechanisms to do so. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, the folks I work with in the safety division at the CPUC are focused like a laser on this. There's a lot of strong uh, coordination between CAL FIRE and the, and the CPUC on this. Um, I think, you know, we have, to, we have to recognize that utilities are operating in um, unprecedented conditions, particularly PG&E that has to wield their power over, you know, uh, millions of square miles of uh, land in the Sierra. Um, so we need a regulatory uh, system that can actually keep up with that and, and keep those systems safe. And then in terms of uh, operational, I think, uh, is it a given that when there are high winds coming through and at certain months, they're going to, it'll be blackouts, brownouts, what have you? This is a great question, and this speaks to this, uh, what's called uh, public safety power shutoffs. Um, so during very high wind events, um, utilities like San Diego Gas and Electric have uh, de-energized their lines, essentially created localized or blackouts within a region. Um, and while that uh, is helpful to avoid the risk of a utility-generated wildfire, it can take 
up to three plus days to actually turn the energy back on um, because uh, inspectors have to walk those lines. So if you're a senior on a ventilator in your home uh, or you're somebody that doesn't have access to you know, leaving town or driving to the, the supermarket, three days without power, particularly in the hot summer, is a major public health and public safety issue. So there's this very um, difficult trade-off. Um, ultimately, it's the utility's decision uh, to, uh, to, turn on, to essentially turn off the energy. But one thing we're doing this summer, because we anticipate that utilities may do that more given the last couple of summers, is working through our Office of Emergency Services, our statewide FEMA, uh, as it were, um, to really get the word out so that people can prepare for this. How, how would the word get out? How, how do you want the word to get out? Well, Sell or... Yeah. Well, so one is just, uh, you know, doing a proactive sort of outreach through the media right now so that if you're in a high risk area, you know that there is a potential for a public safety power shutoff. And much like if you live in the Bay Area, we're educated to have a, uh, essentially an earthquake quit kit to uh, allow us to survive on our own for 72 hours. Uh, folks in communities with uh, may face a pipe public safety power shutoff need to be prepared for a few days without electricity. So part of it is building awareness right now. Um, and the governor and the legislature have provided some funding for those public outreach campaigns. Um, but then there are also uh, public safety uh, emergency systems in communities, including reverse 911. Um, and uh, OES, the emergency uh, department of the state, is working to uh, maximize use of those. Uh, as well. Yeah, I was wondering if there's going to be an Amber Alert or something. I guess after Paradise, people were saying, "I never, I didn't know, I, I wasn't told." And so, an Amber Alert for fire or blackouts or something fire related uh, is that in the works? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's already in the works actually, and it varies by by community. But I know that there has been focus on trying to standardize that across communities. Um, one of the challenges, though, is during a wildfire, um, sometimes the the communication systems go out. Right, and so you can you can lose uh, access on your phone, um, and so really understanding that evacuation route and understanding you know again when some authority is asking you to evacuate, definitely heed that that order. So I have a question about rebuilding. I think I I read a lot and actually discussion a lot because I have uh, friends who live in or near Paradise about whether it should be rebuilt, and some arguments are. It's one of the last affordable places to live in California. But then again, it is, people are like, it's a fire trap, literally, because it, there's one road in, one road out. It is in the valley, it, you know. What's your, uh, and then also, I'll just, I mean, personal, I just feel like I'm personally touched because my parents lived in, um, in this little town called Georgetown, which got hit by the King Fire. They lived in National Forest Service, and they knew what they were getting into. But I just thought, you're one of the many people building into National Forest, and uh, Taxpayer money is being spent to uh, rescue your home. So maybe a little, being a little biased. But in terms of rebuilding in places that are probably going to be hit again and again by fire, um, but again in a state where housing is, it can be a crisis in many ways. What is your take on, maybe not specifically paradise, but rebuilding in areas that are often or always going to be in a high-risk fire zone? Yeah, it's a really sensitive issue because um, land use and development is typically a local issue at the county or city level. Um, and communities across the state are you know, very concerned with the notion that Sacramento or state government would tell them where they can build and they can't build. Um, and frankly, it's a political third rail, um, particularly when you're telling a more rural county 
um, that has less resources and tax revenue that they couldn't build. Um, that is problematic. Um, at the same time, you know, we have to recognize again that a quarter of, of California lives in these high hazard zones. And it seems like in my, uh, from my uh, point of view, um, we can ensure that development, whether it happens, you know, in the wildland urban interface in a suburban area or in, um, in a rural area, uh, happens in a smart way. Um, so I actually think where we can, um, you know, build population or build housing in rural communities actually within the existing footprint and provide incentives for that, that's one example of how we can sort of shape development or help shape development without being overly prescriptive. Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start encouraging people to line up at the mic because I have a couple of questions and then I have water-specific questions. So while I had the first person uh, up at the mic, I want to ask you, uh, I'm going to segue into water yeah. and paradise. Obviously, their water supply is a very big, I think it's contaminated right now. It's going to cost a lot of money to um, make it safe to drink again. How should that be handled? Yeah, this is an example where actually state and federal support are needed. Um, it's, we, have a, we have a quiet crisis in the state regarding water quality, and that's upwards of a million people don't have clean and safe drinking water. And, you know, I don't think we can treat it as a localized issue. And if a local uh, community doesn't have clean and safe water, well, too bad. This is where the state and federal government have to step in. And I know they're doing that in paradise, although it's going to be a long road, and they need to do it in other places. This is absolutely uh, an area where the state should be ensuring that if you're a Californian and you live in California, you have access to clean and safe water as a human right. All right, so obviously we have a lot of questions for you, so I'm going to get into them and try to sprinkle some water-specific questions. But uh, let's have the first gentleman at the mic. And I'll just announce my uh, friend and colleague has brought me my second beer, so <laughs> just in time for question and answer. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this, and thank you for being here, Wade. My name is John White. I live in Sacramento. Um, but I was just over in Sonoma visiting friends on Sunday, and they lived right on the edge of the fire line when, when, this, when the Sonoma fire was, was happening. Um, the TV trucks were right at their edge of their property. So they're very conscious of defensible space and all that. And one of the things they told me is that unimproved property owners do not have any responsibility to clear their land. So they've taken efforts to you know, and this is a very wet spring, so there's a lot of weeds and stuff like that, so there's a lot of work in the garden, but behind them is like five acres, and the woman next door, you know, has taken care of her 100 feet of defensible space, but it seems that getting at that unimproved property owner's obligation or finding a way to give grants or to share it, because she, they said it would be like, if they did it, it would be like $20,000 to clear five acres and, and it's just, so, so to me that's, that was like a, a loophole in our system and I just thought I'd mention it. Thanks so much. I think we have to uh, ensure that within our communities actually we're doing the work needed to um, protect homes from wildfire. So defensible space um, is a concept that gets used a lot in CAL FIRE and there are actually regulations towards defending your home and actually maintaining separation uh, bet uh, between the trees and your home. We, you know, a lot of us have been to that beautiful Tahoe cabin with a tree that's growing through the deck uh, where the Tahoe uh, cabin was designed around the tree. Bad idea. Um, we need to actually ensure uh, enough defensible space. The question that John brought up is, is one step further, which is if somebody has unimproved property, 
shouldn't they have a responsibility um, to clear the vegetation uh, in time for fire season? And I would argue, you know, going out on a limb, uh, yes. Um, and we should, you know, look uh, to under, you know, look to look to explore how we can um, expand those requirements. Um, I will say, you know, Cal Fire does a lot of enforcement on those types of codes, including defensible space, and it's not popular, uh, particularly in rural communities where folks, you know, like living in the forest. But at the same time, you know, these are these are rules uh, and laws that protect us, and so we have to enforce them. Thank you. All right, next question at the mic, please. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time. Alex Torres from Sacramento. Um, so my question is, it was noted when the IOUs presented their wildfire mitigation plans uh, to the legislature that line inspection was a huge component of the of their wildfire mitigation plans. Uh, PG&E indicated they'd doubled and even tripled some of this inspection. Um, but one thing they noted was a significant shortage of labor. Um, they're having trouble uh, getting in-state labor, qualified labor, to perform the line inspections necessary um, to prevent catastrophic wildfire, um, and they're having to do it at a cost premium via contract uh, to other folks in order to make sure that the lines are inspected. What are your thoughts on that issue, and how can y your agency and the legislature or the governor's office assist in that? I'm really glad you brought this up, which is, you know, I think we need to make a, take a problem and, and make it a solution or take a challenge and view it as an opportunity, right, which is we have high... Uh, unemployment in higher unemployment in rural areas, some rural areas of the state, yet we don't have enough workers to actually conduct this work. Um, we need qualified workers, and so and this work is not easy. Um, and uh, untrained, um, you know, professionals out clearing vegetation creates, you know, a dangerous conditions for themselves and others. Um, but this is a workforce development opportunity. Um, so we're, you know, our agency doesn't uh, ad address workforce development, but we're in active conversation with a community college system and with our labor agency around how can we get more training programs out there. Um, we know we need to manage more uh, forest. I'll tell you that our goal right now is managing uh, 500,000 acres of, of forest a year. Um, and in our last year of, of uh, essentially full records, we managed about 30,000 acres. So consider that we have to multiply by 10 the amount of, of forest that we have to uh, manage. Not to mention all of the increased uh, requirements on uh, clearing under lines. There's just a ton of work that needs to get done and we need to identify how we uh, connect uh, folks that are skilled or potentially skilled without jobs with those opportunities. So I think you'll hear a lot more about it in, in months to come. I had a question about that. California Conservation Corps is under your purvey. Uh, I'm not sure if I read something about how they're being um, uh, dra not drafted, but like deployed more in wildfire uh, management. Is there something about California Conservation Corps that's going to be tied more into uh, that, that kind of Work? Yeah, so California Conservation Corps is an incredible program um, uh, that the state has developed, actually under the Governor, Governor Jerry Brown's first term. And essentially you take 
uh, young people from throughout the state and uh, train them to do conservation work, uh, mostly in a residential setting. Uh, and a lot of them move on to opportunities in Cal Fire or Rec and Park, et cetera. It's a great program. They're doing a lot of this work, actually, and we've increased funding for the core. Um, the core is not a massive program, so as we're talking about you know, the need, um, we need to increase state-funded programs, but then greatly increase um, in, you know, so skilled workers um, that would, if they were ready, would be um, you know, on the lines uh, clearing vegetation today. All right, so that's a priority. Okay, next question with the mic, please. Uh, Secretary Crowfoot, my name is Seaver Klug, and I'm from Sacramento, or I live in Sacramento. So, following on these, you know, these last two, and on the earlier conversation, we've come under a lot of criticism as a state for inadequate, or some would say, I mean, even negligent fire and forestry management, which has led to, you know, over suppression and too much undergrowth. And, you know, you say we're, we're stepping up stuff like the California Conservation Corps in that, you know, we're massively increasing, you know, our attempts to prevent fires, not suppress necessarily. But what I'm wondering is, you know, in the era where people are bringing up the Green New Deal, where we're looking at the new normal and where a lot of the solutions and management practices we've had for decades are just not going to work, is there any consideration for some for lack of a better term, a moonshot to not just, you know, we're going to make, we're going to just treat all of the forest, but to actually transform California to a fire resilient state. And has, is that conversation underway for the magnitude of such a program where we could actually over a long period of time transform this state to somewhere where we have all the management, new management practices in place and have done the work to keep these fires from happening? That's yeah, a great question, and I like the way you articulate, you know, the ambition that we should embody. Last week I met with uh, a group of uh, essentially companies, uh, small companies that actually do this work, and they brought in a one-pager in terms of what needs to happen, and they called it California's Green Deal. Um, and that is actually, I mean, we, we have, you know, a major uh, threat to our communities. Um, we have uh, a need uh, for more workers, and we have a lot of folks on the sidelines that don't have jobs. Um, we need to make these connections. Um, the states, as I said, stepping up with unprecedented amount of money. Um, so part of it has to be state and federally funded. But increasingly, we also have to figure out ways to create incentives um, to actually manage the forest. And by this, I actually mean um, wood products markets, for example. Um, Cross-laminated timber, um, for example, which actually uses small diameter wood in the, in the forest uh, and actually takes it out to mills and develops a product. Um, where uh, possible, we need to uh, incentivize um, commercial timber companies to actually do ecologically appropriate work in a broader uh, range of the forests. Now this isn't without controversy, but this is a far cry from the early 1990s when forest issues were positioned, you know, spotted owls versus loggers. I think there's an increasing consensus that we actually have to get in the forest. Um, part of it needs to be um, driven by public investment. Part of it needs to be bringing back um, the private sector with, you know, appropriate oversight. Our moonshot right now is 500,000 acres. Um, I think you could make an argument that that's not ambitious enough. 
uh, frankly, given that, you know, my colleague told you that there are 25 million acres of, of forest. So if you did 500,000 acres a year, it would take you 50 years to manage, the, manage all the forest. That's high hazard. At the same time, you know, I'm a big believer in targets that are really ambitious but achievable. Um, so we're trying to hold ourselves, I mean, a 10x increase in forest management, I think, is ambitious, but achievable in the near term. But I think your question is a great one, which is like, what is our moonshot? And if we're really looking to grow our population to 50 million, which will happen over the next couple of decades, are we ready to invest what we need to in protecting communities from wildfire? And then um, a follow-up question, both dealing with what you mentioned earlier for fire and, you know, where you're talking about potentially having to move back from super fire prone areas and you know the government not being the ones to necessarily make that call the other area that might you know where you have a highly risky development pattern is in areas potentially impacted by sea level rise so in the east coast uh it's becoming there are established government programs especially massachusetts and louisiana to uh handle this type of managed retreat which is partially voluntary and partially driven by insurance concerns. Is there a specific department of, uh, that under you that is dealing with managed retreat for fire, uh, sea level rise, or both? Yeah, it's a great question. So the answer is yes. Um, we have in our Natural Resources Agency the Coastal Commission, which regulates development in about a half-mile band of California's coast. Also the Coastal Conservancy that uh, essentially uh, focuses, you know, resources, funds, um, projects uh, like uh, sea level rise resilience and what's called the Ocean Protection Council. The state put out guidance recently that suggests that if you want um, to develop infrastructure that's going to work in 2100, you have, which is 80 years from now, you have to plan for sea level rise of between five and 10 feet. Now that doesn't sound like a lot sitting here in Sacramento. It's a whole lot if you live in a coastal community, uh, particularly in Southern California. This is real. Um, at the same time, you know, there are real tensions with local communities and the term managed retreat um, is really scary for coastal communities whose whole sense of place is to be essentially right, you know, right, the, uh, right along the coast. Um, our coastal commission is requiring updates to local coastal plans that's really requiring that local coastal communities identify what is their uh, strategy for, for sea level rise. It may mean managed retreat, which means stepping back development and actually abandoning some development. development. It may mean other uh, strategies. In the Bay Area, one of the important um, strategies is more wetlands to act as the sponge to soak up the sea level rise. Um, it's absolutely a critical uh, uh, priority and what we have to get out get away from is you know treating fire in one silo and water supply in another silo and coastal resilience in another silo my big aspiration is California is already leading the world on how we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions while grow our economy I want us to lead the world on how we protect our people and nature from climate change and I think we've started to make progress there but I think only time will tell if in each of these areas we have an appropriate you know uh, effort Thank you. Thank you for the great question. Uh, actually, I, w I had a question about that in terms of um, sea level change. What areas right now on the coast are most at risk or is the whole entire coast? Who should be really? As I understand it, Southern California is more at risk and it just has to do with the topography of the, of the coast. 
um, and where the uh, w you know where most people live. All right, just curious. Next question. Hi there. So some of the ways that we've heard this new administration talk about issues, environmental issues, climate issues, and others, has been really people-centered and very locally focused. And I'm curious to hear what you think some of the ways that the wildfire preparedness and wildfire prevention programs and plans reflect some of those values. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I mentioned that when Governor Newsom took office on his first day, one of his executive orders he issued was uh, focused on trying to bring more technology to the firefight by this fire season. The other one was a focus on protecting the most vulnerable communities. So, you know, Governor Newsom, before he took office, you know, spent time in paradise, and I think he was really compelled by what he saw. And the question he asked is, what other communities are as vulnerable as paradise? Um, so his, his executive order directed CAL FIRE to issue a report in 45 days on what immediate actions uh, the state should take to protect the most vulnerable communities in California. And part of that directive was actually uh, asking CAL FIRE to work with other agencies to really define vulnerability in a new way. So not only looking at physical fire risk, uh, but looking at transportation access, ingress and egress, evacuation corridors, looking at demographics like age, infirmity, uh, car ownership, to really understand which are the most vulnerable communities. Cal Fire produced that report in 45 days and they basically said, okay, here is the most important recommendation we can make, which is um, there are 200 of the, of the state's most vulnerable communities that we could protect this year if we expedited 35 emergency firebreak projects around these communities. Governor, we think we should do this. The governor responded by issuing a proactive emergency declaration, which is really unprecedented, which gave us power to waive contracting requirements and environmental review requirements, uh, the development of these CEQA documents under the California Environmental Quality Act. So it gave my position, the, uh, the secretary's role, the authority to waive CEQA so that these 35 projects could get done. This is our own moonshot this year. Um, I mentioned in the last year of the full records, you know, 2017, we managed 30,000 acres of, of forest. These 35 projects represent 90,000 acres. So this is a 3x uh, in terms of what we've done in years past, all focused on protecting these 200 of the most vulnerable communities in California. Um, we have to manage our forests for people and nature, but I think, and I should say, uh, you know, our immediate focus is essentially working to do whatever we can to, to prevent, you know, another tragedy like paradise. You know, on that note, uh, in terms of vulnerable communities and water, there's been a lot of, uh, at least I've read a lot about uh, the valley, the Central Valley and water contamination there, safe drinking water, and the governor had, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, the water tax that got changed around in uh, legislature. I don't, I don't, I can't remember how it's uh, going to work out now, but I think that brings up to mind, you know, we, we do live in the valley, but we're also an urban quote unquote area. And then there is the rural areas. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the valley, the farmers and urban areas and what, who gets what water and how and how much and so forth. So, uh, I was just curious in terms of this, you know, urban versus rural, valley versus coastal water. What, what are you taking a look at right now? Especially, well, you've had a lot of experience in this, but what, what are you looking at? And I guess, what's the moonshot, I guess, to make uh, rural, urban areas uh, happy and get the water that they need and 
deserve and that is drinkable. Yeah, I mean, I think this, the the generalization about California water is it's all about conflict. North versus south, urban versus rural, um, fi- fish versus farms, environmentalists versus right, farmers. There's that Mark Twain or supposed Mark right. Twain, whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting over. Right. But I actually think, you know, while, while there's some truth to that, it's a totally destructive paradigm. Um, this notion that it's a zero-sum game and it can only be farmers or the environment. Uh, Northern California or Southern California, urban versus rural. So I think it's like, a t- you know, ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a bad frame and, and I actually think totally inaccurate. So the moonshot is we're, g- we're going to actually develop a roadmap this year uh, called the Water Resilience Portfolio that's really going to set forward the actions we're going to take in the next four years uh, to enable water resilience uh, for people and nature uh, through this next century. Um, we think we can do it. Um, we think there's a lot of tough, tough challenges, but California needs to come together on water. I think the silver lining of the drought is that we did uh, and that everybody stepped up. And we can do the same. I mean, California is the fifth largest economy of the world. We're a beacon in so many ways. And our future depends on our ability to use our resources sustainably. Water is top of that list. Uh, and so it's a critical priority. But we have to, and the governor is you know, really focused on breaking out of what he calls the binaries. We have to transcend this sort of tribalism on water uh, and really identify a uh, essentially a set of actions that works for, for everyone. Next question at the mic, please. Hi, my name is Courtney. Uh, my question, well, my original question was going to be how to navigate frustrations maybe between how slowly the legislature moves and how quickly things are progressing that we talked about, water, water cleanliness, fire. Um, But then you mentioned the executive orders and it made me wonder if there are other things like that that you're considering that might really move the needle in a way. And I'm from Texas, so I'm just gonna put a plug for like, we had tornado sirens and they seem to work pretty well. So like the siren system might be a good one, but um, I don't know, just if you have any like immediate thoughts on. Yeah, well, as I said, I grew up in Michigan and that's actually strangely the land of tornadoes too. So I remember those, uh, those sirens. Um, first I just give, I, I give actually a lot of credit to the legislature. The legislature has really stepped up in a big way, uh, to address, you know, wildfire risk, um, including this billion dollars, um, before, before Gavin Newsom got here. I mean, the, the legislative process is a deliberative process, right? Cause we're changing laws. Um, but they've moved pretty nimbly, um, uh, over the last couple of years. And frankly, I'm pretty exhausted looking at the lists of uh, actions that they've passed and what it requires our agency to implement as it relates to prescribed fire, uh, community notification, preparedness, forest management, et cetera. So I think they have worked pretty well. Um, but, you know, certainly we can, we can do more. Um, I think the executive branch is pretty nimble and can be pretty nimble um, just by its nature. Um, and so I think what you'll see, you know, this fire season is a governor that's really focused on rapid response as we're uh, experiencing these fires. Um, I feel like, you know, we're staring down the barrel of another really bad fire season, given, you know, the rain uh, makes some people think that the, the fire season won't be bad, but the challenge with that is it's, it's grown all this vegetation, which is gonna dry out eventually. Our fire season may be delayed a little bit, but it's gonna be a really, really rough fire season. So I think that there's gonna be a lot of actions that we can take. Lastly, as it relates to sirens, I don't know how practical sirens would be in some of the more rural communities, um, but 
the, the notion is we need to bring these ideas to, to the fore and every community should have its preparedness plan. Paradise, for what it's worth, um, was relatively well prepared. Um, as a community, they had actually, you know, drilled evacuation routes. They had, they had done um, uh, brush clearing along their primary evacuation routes. And as I've been uh, briefed, the damage and the death toll would have been far worse had they not been prepared. My worry is um, that there are communities across the state that are far less prepared than Paradise was. So I have a follow-up. So since the legislature is moving quickly enough for you, which, I mean, that's, that's amazing that you think that. Um, I'm wondering if you, there's a way that you think that implementation um, could be sped up, and if there's, yeah. that's my loss. Well, and you know, look, there's, there's probably always ways that we can improve processes, so um, I'm happy to take credit for defending the legislature, uh, considering they approve our budget, um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're challenging ourselves uh, on everything um, from the big ideas to the small ideas. You know, permitting in this state is challenging, and permitting these projects is difficult. So, you know, we took this unprecedented move of actually waiving the California Environmental Quality Act for these emergency projects. Um, we do not want to make that a, uh, a practice. Um, and one thing that we're doing is um, working on a great big environmental impact report that's going to clear a bunch of different types of projects. Uh, in one fell swoop, more or less, to get things done. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're doing, you know, do I think we're doing enough? No, there's always more that we can be doing and moving more quickly, and that's, I think, the challenge we have to hold ourselves to. Uh, next question at the mic. Although, you know, I want to say, I feel like there's never a happy medium when it comes to, uh, you know, the winter and the rainfall. It's either we got too little, it's bone dry, everything's going to burn, or we got too much, and now there's vegetation. It just seems like there's never that, oh, actually, it's not going to be so bad this year. It seems like it's always going to be bad. Yeah, I was meeting today with the former uh, FEMA director under Bill Clinton, and he said he spent more time in California than any other state. And, you know, we're the land of disasters. I mean, we're an incredible, we're an incredible state, but if you think about, you know, the, uh, the range of challenges that we have, and we're not even talking about earthquake, we haven't talked about mudslides, we haven't really addressed flooding, um, you know, these are challenges. They come with a, you know, you know, dramatic landscape and kind of an incomparable geography, but boy, there are challenges. Um, so from my perspective, again, it's really this resilience effort, this climate resilience effort has to be focused on the different areas, wildfire, drought, uh, flooding, sea level rise, but we also have to have sort of a comprehensive approach given all of these threats. Thank you for letting me opine there. It, it does seem like it's always going to be the worst year ever. I was, I'm glad someone else noticed Comes that. <laughs> Comes to the territory. All right, next question. Um, Tony Braun, East Sac resident, father of a four-year-old and a big dog owner, so let's talk. <laughs> um, the federal government owns a lot of land in California, not as much in some of our neighboring states, but still uh, quite a bit. And some of the neighboring states have entered into stewardship agreements where the state basically takes over management of some of the federal lands. I was wondering if there's been any discussions or precedent in that regard and something you guys would be entertaining. It's a great question. The, the direct answer is we're working on one. 57% of California's forest lands are federally managed. Um, and so, you know, the federal-state partnership is essential on this. Um, as I said, there are really uh, strong working relationships at the ground level with Forest Service and CAL FIRE. Um, what we're working to do with this stewardship agreement is, is really explore how we can institutionalize more coordination all the way up the food chain. 
Good example is um, if you look at responsibility areas for CAL FIRE and, and the Forest Service, they're pretty much checkerboarded um, throughout the state. So they're not broad swaths, as one might imagine. And so um, they, have they have essentially developed a, a good neighbor authority. So it allows, as I understand it, CAL FIRE to work on Forest Service land and vice versa to protect their own lands, but then not get caught up on you know, petty jurisdictional issues given this like checkerboard of property ownership. Um, there's all sorts of interesting ideas around how we can deepen those partnerships, and we have to. So I'm hopeful that you'll hear more about a, a comprehensive stewardship agreement in, in months to come. All right, we have another question at the mic. Hello, I'm Sean Harrison, Plumas Lake, but still a close neighbor and had family members who were devastated by the um, campfire. And so I'm just wondering, one, we got rid of SRA fees. So is that something that possibly now that we see the value in trying to make people kind of understand uh, as a reminder of those fees where they're at because I know for my family members who lived in paradise it was a nice reminder they hated to pay it but they knew the value of it and it was a reminder to do their defensible space and to be aware two and I would really love to hear more if you can share about the request for innovative ideas or RFI square yeah so and, and SRA yeah I'll explain that I'm sorry yeah. No, it's okay. It's a great, it's a great question. So um, if we live in an incorporated city um, and uh, we have a problem, our, the house next door uh, is burning, we call the local fire department and our local taxes pay for that fire department. If you live in many parts of rural California, uh, unincorporated community, you don't have a local fire department. Cal Fire is your fire department. So Governor Brown um, uh, advanced uh, during the challenging budget times, advanced uh, what was called a, uh, a fire fee or a fee in the state responsibility area, which is nomenclature for these unincorporated areas that are the responsibility of CAL FIRE. And the argument is, you know, local urban residents are paying their local taxes for, for, uh, for fire suppression by a local department, and if you're getting your local service from CAL FIRE, you should chip in. Not popular in rural communities, but... Uh, and I should say, as a result, um, you know, moving forward uh, in the legislature, uh, ultimately that, f that fee was repealed uh, as part of a um, large um, compromise uh, as it relates to the state's greenhouse gas reduction fund. Um, so rural legislators that were hearing it from their rural residents that this was unaffordable and onerous um, ultimately, we're able to prevail that the SR fee was not, SRA fee was not appropriate. I would, uh, I'm going to take the easy answer and say that's far above my pay grade uh, to be able to answer, but I think... Firefighter you know, response? <laughs> um, it's, um, but I appreciate the question, and it's, you know, uh, others have brought it up um, more recently. Um, and if you can expand, if it's allowed, I'm also a Cal Fire auditor, so I'm just interested in finding out more about what's going on with the, um, oh, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah. the request for... Yeah, so the, the, the so-called procurement sprint. So this was the governor's executive order on the first full day of office focused on um, innovative technologies. And the idea is, you know, we have really um, elaborate, uh, careful uh, contracting processes at the state. And this is important, and it prevents fraud. It prevents, you know, someone in my position from giving their cousin a contract, for example. Um, and so, but the challenge is they take time. 
And so Governor Newsom was focused on, okay, how can we pilot, how can we get more technologies out there for the firefight this fire season? And the notion was this procurement sprint. And the idea is how do you create, uh, as I understand it, a competitive selection process to pilot new technologies, but not having to go through all of the steps of the normal contracting process. So where I think the process sits is um, those proposals have been received and reviewed and now shortlisted and um, that uh, some personnel at CAL FIRE are now essentially um, in the process of interviewing and selecting technologies to begin to pilot this fire season. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the great questions. All right, uh, we have about five, maybe seven minutes more. So uh, I'll take one last question if there's in the mic. In the meantime, I will ask you a couple questions. Uh, water, coastal, I think um, as someone who is a scuba diver and uh, loves to go, I love marine life, I think California has a very good reputation of managing the coast. There's discussion about, um, I guess, in the interior, saving our fish, the smelt, the salmon, and how dams play a, a part in that. Uh, I was reading how Carmel, I guess the Carmel River took down a, a dam, and, and they're seeing a lot of uh, results. I think a little fish like the smelt, right, in the valley, people are saying, should we take down dams? Should we, you know, shouldn't people, I guess my question is people versus fish or people and fish, dams, uh, good or bad, what's your take on, um, what, what would you like to do with current dams, building new ones, taking down ones, and then in terms of, um, you know, can the salmon be saved? Are there fish that uh, you want to see restoration projects for? Um, yeah, fish and dams, basically. So my answer is people and fish. Um, but, and I should say that this is challenging. I mean, we're a nation of nation. That's a Freudian slip. We're a state um, of 40 million people, uh, upwards of 40 million people, and we are the most biodiverse hotspot in, in the United States. Um, we have salmon that have been returning to these California tributaries that um, remarkably um, will, will actually trace their pathway back to the very st small stream that they were born in. And they've been returning for 10,000 years. And they are literally within years of extinction, losing them off the planet. At the same time, we have communities, uh, for example, in the Central Valley, um, whose lifeblood is agriculture, which requires water, that is seeing reduced water supplies for a number of reasons. And so the question is, uh, how, do we, how do we balance uh, this uh, together? One most important answer is we're not going to sacrifice one for the other. That's not who we are as California. Um, you know, we need to, we need to stand up uh, for, you know, water security for every Californian, but we also need to protect our species. Um, and to folks that say you can't do either, you have to choose, I disagree. Um, we are undertaking a whole lot to actually uh, stabilize and restore the environmental uh, habitat of these endangered salmon. Um, when you drive over the uh, causeway from Sacramento to uh, the Bay Area, you may not know that you are driving over one of the most Im important um, uh, multi-benefit environmental habitats in the state, the Yolo Bypass. This is a great example of what we need to do more of. Um, a natural floodplain that, that floods seasonally, uh, a little weir, a little notch in the levee when the, when the river reaches a certain level starts to flood that bypass and it looks like a little inland sea. That protects you know, our community in Sacramento from flooding risk, 
parentheses, Sacramento has the worst flooding risk of any major city in the country. Um, but it also provides incomparable habitat to these small salmon and lets them get nice and fat, um, protected from, from predators, um, and uh, bulks them up for their journey back to the sea. We can do so much more of that. Um, if I had an hour to, to talk to you about how we can actually ensure water supply for California and Another policy habitat, to pint. We'll I would, it. yeah. It would take a couple more pints. <laughs> All right, so we'll make this the last question at the mic, and then I have one more for you. Sure. Um, I'm just wondering how the forest management projects that you described earlier you know, intersect with, if you will, the state's carbon reduction um, or carbon sequestration goals Yeah, it's, on yeah, both it's, sides. These are such good questions. I wish I planted them. Um, so, you know, our, our forests are the, the, the largest carbon sink that we have on the planet, which means that the trees uh, absorb uh, carbon dioxide. And they're a critical uh, strategy in uh, averting ca catastrophic, you know, climate change. Um, and we used to talk a lot about tropical forests, and we still should because tropical forests are a major uh, absorber of carbon. But recent research suggests actually temperate forests like we have in California may be even, you know, acre for acre, uh, even more effective uh, sequestering carbon. At the same time, when we have these catastrophic fires, not only does it create poisonous air quality for us, it releases a ton of carbon in the atmosphere. Let me, let me lay on you a very depressing fact. Um, the uh, carbon emissions as a result of the fires in 2017 and 2018 um, wiped out the savings in emissions that we've achieved since the passage of AB 32, the state's landmark Global Cl uh, Climate Change Act. So in Which other was uh, passed when? 2013? 2006. 2006. Boy, I need to phone a friend on that. Thank you, Jessica. Um, 2006, so over the last 15 years. Um, and that's not to be discouraging, but it is to say, uh, to uh, um, underscore the importance of forests in our climate strategy. Critical. Uh, and so an, an effectively managed forest can uh, be an absorber uh, of climate. Uh, an ineffectively for uh, managed forest with catastrophic wildfire is going to worsen our climate crisis. Thanks. All right. Uh, last question. I'm going to make it a two-parter, actually. Uh, I'm going to let you plug... Uh, initiatives or plans that you have for a few of your other many commissions or uh, departments that you have because we haven't really talked about fish and wildlife or state parks or well maybe coastal commission my dad has a beef with coastal commission but um, I guess anything in those areas that you're uh, you're going to tell us about that you have big plans for just a few highlights there if, if there are any and then last part b will be i keep driving by your new building that's going up and there's that old mansion is that leland stanford's mansion it's not but it's, uh, it's same it's vintage old mansion and then there's this humongous building going up so maybe you can tell us a little more plug your new building when it's going up and what will be very notable about that sure so First question first, one area uh, that I'm excited about that we didn't have a chance to talk about uh, today is uh, expanding access uh, for all Californians to our nature. Um, so what um, a lot of folks in the room may not realize is that there are Californians that uh, live in, in Los Angeles that have never seen the beach. Um, and there are folks living in urban communities that have um, no access uh, to parks within miles. 
Uh, I think in Sacramento, we're blessed with a lot of green space and a lot of access. One thing we're really focused on is ensuring that actually state parks and open space is more accessible to more people. Um, so, you know, we call it access for all. Uh, and it's something we're really focused on. It'll be a partnership with local governments, federal governments, but um, it's something that you'll hear more about. Like taking people on camping trips or actually getting them in a car, hey, let's Both, drive, but or? also creating more uh, state parks and urban communities. So there's a, a new park, and relatively new park in L.A. called the State Historic Park. And it's uh, uh, right outside of Chinatown, outside of downtown uh, Los Angeles. And when you go there, it's an amazing green space that's being kind of imagined with a community. And you wouldn't think of it as your stereotypical uh, state park, which has a bunch of forested trees and nice hiking trails. But it's essential. Uh, if we're going to actually meet the mission of the state parks, which are to provide you know, opportunities for people to get out in nature, uh, we have to do it and meet people where they're at. And then I'll plug the building, um, the new building, which is really the credit of a lot of people that came before me. Um, Where, and for those who don't know where it is, I, I forget, what's the intersection yeah. there? It's like 7th and this will be L? No, this will be... 8th and O. 8th and O. Um, and it will be uh, the state's newest office building. Um, so the resources agency uh, currently occupies one of the oldest and qualitatively worst office buildings in the state. Um, so by virtue of being at the end of the line or the, the back of the line or the, in one of the more challenged buildings, we're moving into the new building. But what's really exciting about this for Sacramento is, um, one, that it's going to really be uh, uh, public facing. Um, and so we're going to have um, retail, food and beverage that's going to actually activate that part of Sacramento, which is a bit of a food and retail desert. So we'll actually have food kiosks that will be indoor-outdoor with a bunch of shaded outdoor seating. So we hope it's a community amenity. We'll have um, uh, Sacramento's largest daycare for employees. So that's, that's meaningful if you're an employee. We'll have a lot of public access, uh, public meeting space. Um, that won't require, you know, checking in through security, so it's going to be more accessible to the public. Um, and then importantly, to kind of walk the walk, um, it will be a, a LEED uh, platinum equivalent building, um, it, all sorts of um, uh, environmental technologies. It'll be sort of the best of the best as it relates to environmental sustainability. So like a rooftop deck with... Uh I don't know, trees, and I'm hoping that that would be a yeah, good there's no, there's no, Yeah, uh, there's no rooftop deck or bar. But, but you are um, the secretary, uh, and yes. could you, I know it's not built yet. Yeah. That's no, my plan. My, my powers have limits. <laughs> uh, uh, but I will say, it's going to be like kind of on a campus uh, atmosphere. I think it's going to be great for uh, a little, little bit of green space uh, for that part of Sacramento. And again, for, you know, Sacramentans, it's just going to be that much, uh, it's going to be one more thing to activate uh, the capital area. Well, Secretary Crowfoot, welcome to Sacramento. Thank you. Uh, you have a big job ahead of you, but it sounds like uh, you, you know what you're talking about. And uh, we look forward to seeing how you handle all your many responsibilities. And thank you very much for making the time to come out this evening and talk to us. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with the Groundbreakers. You all are doing really important work, having uh, interesting and importantly fun conversations. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for the great questions for coming out tonight. Really appreciate because couldn't do it without you. So I appreciate it. And have a good evening. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on June 4th at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento, California. Thanks to Wade Crowfoot and his team at the Department of Natural Resources for participating. 
to Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose of Antiquity Midtown for hosting this event, and to our volunteers, Danielle Metzinger and Nate Graham for making sure everything went smoothly. Also thanks to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out what our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.